Welcome to the November 15th, 2022 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm here to give you a quick peek at what's new in Annals since our last podcast. The first article I'll urge you to go to annals.org to read reports a large contact tracing investigation of a patient with monkeypox virus infection that identified no secondary cases in the community or the healthcare setting. The creation of a framework for assessing specific risk scenarios permitted ease of application by employee occupational health staff and application across the various settings, and the findings have important applications for informing future infection prevention efforts, including the administration of post-exposure prophylaxis. In May 2022, the first U.S. case of monkeypox infection occurring within the recent global outbreak was identified. Before the patient was identified as a person who might have monkeypox, he received care in many locations without specific infection prevention precautions. Consequently, once he was known to have monkeypox, public health and clinical personnel launched a contact tracing effort to identify potentially exposed individuals. Authors from Harvard Medical School and Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center describe a framework of contact tracing, exposure identification, risk stratification, administration of post-exposure prophylaxis, and exposure period monitoring for contacts of the index patient, including evaluation of persons who develop symptoms possibly consistent with monkeypox infection. Those with high-risk exposures were offered post-exposure prophylaxis, and three persons elected to have it. Among those with intermediate risk exposures for which post-exposure prophylaxis was offered as part of informed clinical decision-making, two elected to receive it. No transmissions were identified at the conclusion of the 21-day monitoring period, despite the delay in recognition of monkeypox in the index patient. Public health authorities and healthcare facilities should consider how these findings may inform revised estimates of exposure risk requirements for monitoring, and recommendations for post-exposure prophylaxis. Parkinson's disease is a progressive neurodegenerative disorder caused by accumulation of synuclein in the enteric and central nervous systems. In addition to motor symptoms, persons with Parkinson's disease may experience constipation, disturbances in sleep architecture, cognitive dysfunction, psychosis, and depression, all of which result from impaired function of neural pathways not restored by replacement of dopamine. In the next article, researchers from the Mayo Clinic and other centers report a randomized control trial of 150 persons with Parkinson's disease and constipation who were given either ENT01 or placebo daily for up to 25 days. The researchers found that orally administered ENT01 is safe and that it rapidly normalizes bowel function in a dose-dependent fashion with an effect that seemed to persist for several weeks beyond the treatment period. They note that this suggests that the enteric nervous system is not irreversibly damaged in Parkinson's disease. They also report that adverse events, including nausea and diarrhea, were largely confined to the GI tract supporting the local action of ENT01. The authors advise that in future studies, starting at lower doses and escalating more slowly may reduce the frequency of adverse symptoms. They also advise that given the brief treatment period, the safety of ENT01 will need to be evaluated for longer exposures in future studies. Transvenous implantable cardiac defibrillators, or ICDs, can improve survival in patients at risk for cardiac arrest, but are associated with intravascular lead-related complications. 
The subcutaneous ICD has no intravascular components and was developed to minimize lead-related complications. Researchers from McMaster University conducted a randomized multicenter trial that enrolled 544 persons with a primary or secondary prevention indication for an ICD. The authors found that patients who received a subcutaneous ICD had a 92% lower risk of lead-related complications and almost no lead-related perioperative complications, including myocardial perforation, which can lead to death. They also reported a modest reduction in system reliability with the subcutaneous ICD, specifically a trend towards more inappropriate shocks. After a mean follow-up of 2.5 years, there was a non-significant 22% reduction in the need for surgical ICD revision in the patients who received a subcutaneous compared to a transvenous device. This ongoing trial will follow participants over the longer term to evaluate chronic ICD performance and the need for ICD replacement. Healthcare systems want to identify high-need, high-cost patients with the hope that identifying these patients early can help control subsequent healthcare costs. Finding ways to improve outcomes and reduce spending for patients with complex and costly care needs requires an understanding of their unique needs and characteristics. High-need, high-cost patients are those who have multiple chronic conditions or functional limitations, and their care can be further complicated by behavioral health conditions and social risk factors. A challenge for clinicians, health systems, and payers is to distinguish high-need, high-cost patients from the larger population of patients with chronic conditions. Next is a review article that started with an existing National Academy of Medicine taxonomy and reviewed available evidence to examine characteristics of high-need, high-cost adult patients. Based on the review of 64 studies published in 65 articles, the researchers created a three-step process for identifying such patients in the healthcare setting. One, identify clinical or functional risks. Two, assess for behavioral or social risks. And three, identify patterns of healthcare use. Patients with multiple comorbidities or chronic clinical conditions, such as heart disease, chronic kidney disease, diabetes, chronic lung disease, cancer, hypertension, and chronic pain, were more likely to be high-need, high-cost users. Also, having mental illness or substance use disorders or facing poverty, homelessness, or food insecurity increase the risk of being a high-needs, high-cost user. Finally, those with a pattern of high healthcare use in the past were more likely to continue this pattern in the future. The authors of an accompanying editorial from the University of Pittsburgh Graduate School of Public Health offer a real-world perspective on how the modified framework contributes to identifying patient needs, what appears to be missing, and possible next steps. They note that more data on patient demographics and characteristics may help to improve the taxonomy, as could incorporating ways to identify mismatched care. If you go to annals.org, in addition to the review article and the editorial, you'll find a brief video summarizing the review. This month's In the Clinic review is on perioperative evaluation prior to non-cardiac surgery. The goal of perioperative assessment is to identify procedure and patient factors that impact the risk of postoperative complications. Preoperative risk stratification assists healthcare teams to fully understand the patient's operative morbidity. Careful directed preoperative evaluation enables implementation of strategies to mitigate specific risks both pre- and postoperatively. Go to annals.org to refresh your knowledge on this important and common clinical consultation. While knee and hip osteoarthritis often takes center stage, ankle osteoarthritis can also be a cause of severe pain and disability. 
Persons with ankle osteoarthritis are primarily treated with non-operative treatment, including weight loss, activity modification, support braces, and analgesics. However, surgical interventions may be indicated if non-surgical treatments are unsuccessful. The main surgical options are total ankle replacement and ankle fusion. Replacement introduces a prosthetic joint and aims to retain movement, while fusion fuses the ankle bones together, limiting motion, but hopefully improving symptoms. High-quality data is lacking to inform decision-making about which procedure a patient should have. In the next article, researchers from University College London and Imperial College London report a randomized control trial that enrolled and randomized 303 persons with end-stage ankle osteoarthritis aged 50 to 85 years who the treating surgeon believed to be suitable for either procedure. After patients underwent operation, the authors calculated the clinical response by measuring the walking and standing domains of the Manchester-Oxford foot questionnaire at both prior to and 52 weeks after surgery. They found that both walking and standing domain scores improved by similar rates in 52 weeks in both groups. However, in a retrospective analysis, they showed that the commonest ankle implant used in the UK, a fixed bearing or two-component ankle, in fact, did show better outcomes than ankle fusion at 52 weeks. The investigators also report that each group experienced similar rates of adverse events, but replacement was associated with greater wound healing complications and nerve injuries, while fusion was associated with more blood clots and non-union of the ankle bone. Next is the report of a cohort study of more than 900 pregnant persons that looked at the effectiveness and safety of monoclonal antibody treatment for mild to moderate COVID-19. Monoclonal antibodies have been associated with decreased hospitalization and death in outpatients with mild to moderate COVID-19. Pregnancy is currently considered a risk factor for severe disease, and guidelines recommend the use of monoclonal antibody for treatment of pregnant persons with COVID-19. However, data on effectiveness and safety in pregnant persons are limited. Researchers from the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine conducted a cohort study of 944 pregnant persons between April 2021 and January 2022. Of all participants, 58% received monoclonal antibody treatment, and 69% of those persons were given sotravivimab. The authors found that among treated persons, drug-related adverse events occurred in 1.4% of participants, and there were no differences in any obstetric-associated outcomes among 778 persons who delivered. They also report no difference in 28-day COVID-19-associated outcomes and non-COVID-19-related hospital admissions for monoclonal antibody treatment compared with no monoclonal antibody treatment. According to the authors, in the context of their study, pregnant persons with minimal comorbidities and low risk for severe disease in the Omicron variant error may not benefit from treatment with the routine use of monoclonal antibodies. However, they note that it is unknown whether monoclonal antibodies would benefit or harm pregnant persons with additional risk factors for severe disease, and whether different monoclonal antibodies are variably effective against different SARS-CoV-2 variants in pregnant persons. The affordability of insulin in the U.S. is a hot topic. A study published in Annals several weeks ago found that patient rationing of insulin because of cost is extremely common. One in five persons surveyed reported rationing. A new ideas and opinions commentary describes California's newly announced effort to manufacture insulin for its residents in an effort to make insulin affordable. 
In July 2022, the state of California announced it would begin a new initiative to create state-led insulin manufacturing effort that would develop, manufacture, and distribute insulin at below market prices. The commentary highlights how California's insulin manufacturing initiative will disrupt the insulin market. First, it will provide insulin at transparent prices that are closer to the cost of production, providing financial relief to many of the 3 million Californians who have diabetes. The authors estimate that this initiative could save a single person with type 1 diabetes two to $4,000 per year. Second, California may create the beginning of a system that breaks from the current model where supply chain participants profit off rebates and price concessions negotiated for insurers. They will do this by partnering directly with health plans such as the California Public Employees Retirement System and Covered California to create a market for CalRx insulins. However, the authors advise that the success of the program depends on the number of beneficiaries that will accept its products and ensuring that CalRx insulins are easily available and accessible to consumers by developing relationships with pharmacies and convenient retail outlets. According to the authors, success of CalRx biosimilar insulin initiative will also lay the groundwork for future targets such as other biologic and non-biologic drugs. Also new on Analyst.org are two new on being a doctor essays, several new at Libidin poems, and a new on being a patient essay that addresses the implicit bias a medical student of color encountered when seeking mental health care. And the latest Analyst on Call podcast discusses the underuse of thymine in ICU patients with alcohol use disorder. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Happy Thanksgiving to those listeners in the U.S. who will soon be celebrating the holiday. And thanks to all for listening, and I hope you'll go to annals.org to take a look at some of the new material I've mentioned. I'll be back with the next podcast on December 6th. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson, Andrew Langman, and Bernie Turner for their technical support.